Welcome to Facts Roundtable, a podcast dedicated to navigating life with food allergies across the lifespan. Presented in a welcoming format with interviews and open discussions, each episode will explore a specific topic, leaving you with the facts to know or use. Information presented via this podcast is educational and not intended to provide individual medical advice. Please consult with your personal board-certified allergist or healthcare providers for advice specific to your situation. Hi, everyone. I'm Caroline Mawasasi, and I am your host for the Fact Roundtable podcast. I am a food allergy parent, advocate, and the founder of the Grateful Foodie blog, and I am Fact's Vice President of Community Relations. Information presented via this podcast is educational and not intended to provide individual medical or legal advice. Please consult with your personal board-certified allergist, healthcare provider, or local legal counsel for advice specific to your situation. Before we start today, I would like to give a heartfelt thank you to Amun for sponsoring Facts Roundtable Podcast. It's hard to believe summer is almost over and we're gearing up for back to school. To help listeners get ready for a great return to school, we're sitting down with FACS General Counsel and Director of Civil Rights Advocacy, Amelia Smith, JD, to help us dust off our accommodation skills and to revisit the basics for success. Welcome, Amelia. It is always a joy to host you on the show. You always bring amazing insight that we really need and guidance to our listeners. So welcome. I'm just absolutely thrilled to have you back on the podcast. Thank you, Caroline. I'm happy to be back. Wonderful. We're just going to dive right into our topic. Can you bring listeners up to speed as to where we stand as a nation regarding the COVID-19 guidelines, which may impact students as they return to school this fall? Well, Caroline, as always, the answer to this question really depends on where you are located. Every state is different. Every school district is going to be different. And really, we're already seeing that it varies from place to place. Some districts have announced that they will be returning to the cafeterias for meals this year. Yay! That makes me happy. Some have announced that masks will be optional. Most all school plans that I have read so far say that increased surface cleaning and hygiene protocols will remain in place at least through fall of 2021. So now is really the time to start looking into your school's COVID plans for the upcoming school year to determine what additional accommodations your student may need. And yes, I can even see this with my conversations online with my other food allergy friends, how very different it is. And even with colleges, some colleges are requiring vaccinations, some aren't. So it is very different. It really is. Just as everything that we deal with in food allergies in school is very different across the board. So here we are yet again. (laughs) You know what? That is our truth. It is very unique no matter what. Now, let's start with the basics. What are food allergy accommodations exactly? And then who has the right to request those accommodations? So food allergies may be deemed a disability that requires accommodation under federal disability laws and regulations. These accommodations are designed to allow students with food allergies to safely participate in education, the school environment, and extracurricular activities with access equal to that of their non-allergic peers. As your child's parent, you can refer your child for an evaluation. And of course, there are several different types of accommodation plans available out there. 
there's an IEP, which stands for Individualized Education Program. IEPs are for students with one or more of 13 conditions specifically set forth in the IDEA. Food allergies alone do not typically qualify a student for an IEP, but if a student has an IEP for another condition, that student's food allergy-related accommodations can also be included in his or her IEP. Another type of plan that we see is an IHP or an IHCP, which is an individual health plan or an individual health care plan. These typically address medical concerns and needs in school. NASN, the National Association of School Nurses, takes the position that these are medical documents and are not necessarily the appropriate plan for accommodations that are not medical in nature. So that's important to note as well. And then of course, here comes my favorite, Section 504 plan. 504 plans are based on Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, which prohibits programs that receive federal funds from discriminating against individuals with disabilities solely on the basis of their disability. A 504 plan, as I said, is my preferred accommodation plan for food allergy-related accommodations in public K-12 schools due to the numerous legal protections Section 504 offers. You mentioned a little bit earlier that as a parent, we can refer our child for evaluation. Are those the terms a parent would use? So if a parent was just starting at a school brand new, would they contact the school and say, hey, I need you to evaluate my child for food allergies? Or do you mean in terms of evaluation that the parent needs to call the school and say, look, we would like to talk about accommodations? It is for accommodations. The evaluation language is the specific language your child has to be evaluated to determine if they need accommodations. Then after the evaluation process, then you get into the actual process of determining what accommodations are needed. But first, the school has to do the evaluation and say, yes, this child has a disability that would qualify him or her for an accommodation plan. Thank you for bringing that clarity. Now I'm going to move on a little. Requesting accommodations can really feel overwhelming. And as we break it down in this podcast, parents are definitely going to learn how to smoothly approach getting food allergy accommodations in place and set up. Therefore, what are some of the steps that we need to take and how should a parent go about seeking those accommodations? Each individual school district has a referral process for evaluating students for either an IEP or a Section 504 plan, maybe even IHP. Prior to beginning the referral process, it's a good idea to either go on your school district's website or call the school district and find out the information on their referral process, including to whom referrals are sent. Uh, this will better prepare you for the process. It's also recommended to start the process as soon as possible before the new school year, I even like to recommend that families try to start this process in the spring, but often that's not possible. You know, we don't even get to my son's 504 meeting until the week before school because we don't even know whose room he's going to be in. A lot of schools don't assign teachers until the week or so before school starts. It's very important that when you request your evaluation, the request is in writing. You can direct this request to the school administrator and the school's 504 coordinator. Email is a preferred method. That way you're able to copy a second school administrator in charge. If you are mailing it via postal mail, you need to send your referral via certified mail to receive proof of the delivery. Because once the school receives the referral, this starts their timeline for their deadline and when to complete the referral. 
So having that proof that it was sent on a certain date is very helpful. You need to understand the timelines for your district's referral. Each district has a set timeline once the referral has been made and once they receive the referral, but the timelines are different. So you want to be sure to note the date, as I said, that you sent it. And of course, on our website, we have a sample parental referral letter that is available in our Civil Rights Advocacy Resource Center. Um, I have sent you the link for it, Caroline, so if you could drop it below this podcast, that would be wonderful. But that letter is there, and it basically, you know, hey, my child has a food allergy, which is a disability. It limits these different major life functions, and here's my request. So it's all there. I want our listeners to know that in the show notes, I will have every single link to anything that Amelia has referenced because she's going to be giving you lots of information throughout the podcast, and I want you to be able to find it in one easy spot. Amelia, I do have one question about the timeline. Regarding a school district's timeline, how do you find that information, and then what is considered reasonable? Okay, so reasonable does not fall into play in the timeline. Every state Department of Education should have a timeline for their schools in that state, and every district should also have it available. Some school districts have specific timelines for Section 504. Other districts use their IDEA timelines, the timelines used for an IEP referral. Depending on what state you're in, they can count holidays, they can count weekends, or they cannot. So you may be looking at a business day deadline, or you may be looking at calendar days. So it really does vary from state to state and, you know, district to district. If you cannot find these on your state Department of Education website or your local school district website, you know, we can put you in touch with someone in your area that can help you figure out what your timeline is. Thank you. Now, a parent should have the ball rolling after they send out that referral letter. The next steps would be determining the accommodations that are needed. So how does a parent determine what accommodations does their child need? And then what does asking for too much or too little look like? I know for myself, I had a hard time just determining what was needed in middle school. And so I actually reached out to parents who were ahead of me and asked them to help me at least have some kind of guideline there. But where do we begin with this? So no matter the type of accommodation plan that your students has or that you've chosen for your student, this plan should document the student's needs. This includes accommodations necessary to keep the food allergic student safe at school as well as during school-sponsored activities or events. It's important to note that not all accommodations are appropriate for every child, as you mentioned. You should only request accommodations that will ensure access for your child equal to that of his or her non-disabled peers. Accommodations are not intended to give preferential treatment. They are designed to level the playing field. So in looking for your accommodations and areas to consider, the accommodation plan outlines different responsibilities. So it should look at the responsibilities of you know, not only the school staff, the administrator, the staff, the transportation personnel, food services personnel, staff involved with school-sponsored activities before or after school, but you should expect that there will be responsibilities in that plan for you and your student as well such as, you know, if your student self-carries their medication, it will be their responsibility and part of their plan that they have their medication on them. It is a parent's responsibility to provide the school with 
an anaphylaxis action plan and the epinephrine that are needed at school. It would be the school's responsibility to make sure that the action plan was followed and the, and the medication was administered by the school as appropriate. So in that little scenario. But of course, there are many different areas of concern to consider for accommodation. Some of these areas include communication with the school and other parents. Now, how is the school going to notify parents of the policies regarding food allergy in that school or in your child's classroom? The classroom itself, what accommodations are necessary in that individual classroom or in the specials, the music, the art, what accommodations are needed in those classrooms? What about the cafeteria? If you're eating in the cafeteria this year, which hopefully most of our food allergic students are because I hate food in the classroom, you haven't listened to other podcasts, you would know that, but I haven't go listen to them. But, you know, we may be back in the cafeteria this year. Do we have a allergen-free area in the cafeteria? Do we have preferential seating? Do we have a buffer zone where we're with our class, but at the end with the teacher nearby to watch and, you know, buffer zone around us or students that eat safe food next to us? How do we handle the cafeteria? Another area is celebrations. Are we going to allow parties in the classroom or are we going to make sure that birthday cupcakes that are brought in are consumed in the cafeteria and not in the classroom? How are we going to clean, especially in COVID times when some schools may still have increased cleaning? We still want to make sure that the appropriate cleaning products are used, something that may not trigger an asthma attack if your student has asthma well as food allergies, and are the right surfaces being cleaned? Transportation, is your student going to ride the bus? Is the bus driver going to be epi-trained, or is there going to be a paraprofessional on the bus? How is this going to be done? Where is your child going to sit on the bus? Who are they going to sit with? Substitute teachers is another area. How are the substitute teachers going to know that your student has food allergies and know what to do? Field trips. Who's going on the field trip? Are you going to be allowed to go on any field trip? even though there is a limited number of chaperones allowed to go, or it's one of those where no parental chaperones are allowed to go, are you going to have an accommodation that you're able to go with your student? Or is there going to be a nurse present on the trip? How are field trips going to be handled? Medication is another area. Where is your student's medication going to be kept? Who's going to be responsible for administering it? All of those can be included in the accommodation plan. Same with emergency situations. What are the steps that they're going to take? Are they going to follow? What plan are they going to follow? Who's going to be the one to call 911 and who's going to be the one to administer epinephrine? Different people can be assigned different responsibilities there. And then, of course, your student responsibilities. Are they going to be required to bring safe food? Are they going to be required to make sure that they have their medication on them? Those should all be considered. And then, again, like I mentioned, COVID-specific accommodations. Face coverings. We know that masks can conceal the onset of allergic reaction if the symptoms present around the mouth or orally. Mask mouth to make it feel more difficult to breathe, which can make a student think that they're having a reaction or an asthma attack. So those are some concerns around face coverings. Another area of concern specific to COVID, again, is cleaning and noting that certain products may trigger allergy or asthma symptoms or contact skin reactions in students. Is distance learning could be another area. Is distance learning going to be an option for your student? And can your student elect to utilize distance learning even when other students are attending in person to other COVID concerns that might impact the student eating in the classroom, different cleaning products? If your student's having reactions day in and day out or asthma attacks, you may need to look at something different because we all know that with COVID being as impactful as it is, that we are really in a situation where we are still weighing things good to the greater public versus the need to stay food allergic safe 
we were really in a bad spot. So instead of spending half the year butting heads with our school district, it may be easier to take a step back and say, okay, my child just needs to remain virtual for the next six months. And if you and your family can do that, and if it works for your family and your student, it is totally a valid option. And of course, the biggie, food in the classrooms. We've learned over the last year of dealing with food in the classrooms some workarounds. These include allowing classes that contain students with food allergies to eat their meals in the cafeteria, dining hall, or other spaces other than the classroom, while classes that do not contain students with food allergies consume their meals in the classrooms. And this still limits the population size of the students in the cafeteria and reserves the cafeteria just for those students with food allergies. So it keeps the classroom food free of the student with food allergies, but it still allows the others to eat in their classroom and still reduces that population size, which is the whole purpose of the CDC's recommendation. You also can designate a certain area in the classroom for consumption of allergens. You can assign the student with food allergies preferential seating near the door, near the teacher, or away from the trash can. And you also want to consider if enhanced cleaning, a larger classroom to allow for more distancing, increased hand washing, and enhanced prohibiting a food sharing. Are these needed? These are some other areas to look at. All accommodations, a great place to start is the extensive list of sample accommodations available in fact Civil Rights Advocacy Resource Center. We have revised this document. It looks a lot different than it six months ago, but everything that was there is still there with some additions. We just kind of refreshed it and revamped it. So if you look at it and it's different, don't panic. It's all still there. Amelia, where were you about 20 years ago? when I started on this journey. This is incredible information just to have that list of the type of accommodations to just get us thinking in that direction. So then we can get that idea and then turn back to our child and look at the appropriate age and stage and so forth. Again, thank you for this wonderful, wonderful information. And I'm just kind of curious in regards to actually getting to that accommodation meeting. Is there a suggested age that a student participates in the accommodation meeting? Again, just as with accommodations, it's really going to depend on your child's own developmental and maturity level. Just as with accommodations, what's appropriate for one child with one allergy in one grade will not be appropriate for a child with the same allergy in the same grade. And thus is the same with taking your child to a meeting. My child started attending in early elementary school. You know, I took him in the meeting, but he had his electronic and he had his headphones. And we would ask him questions that we felt he was mature enough to answer. You know, His preferences of different options in the classroom, things like that. And then once he got into older elementary school and now middle school, he attends the meetings with me and participates fully. But we know that there's some sensitive things that can be discussed in meetings, symptoms and the way allergic reaction presented. You may have to take in a picture of your child having a very severe reaction, a picture from the emergency room to get through and to get some of the accommodations you're requesting. And I know for young children, that can be startling. That's why we did the headphones, because I told the hard stories in the meetings. So it sheltered him from that. And then once he was more mature and fully comprehended the nature of his allergies, but also was capable of owning that and it not being so traumatizing, I guess would be a word to use. He started participating because the sooner your child learns to 
speak up for themselves, advocate for themselves, the better. We had the same experience in our family, too, as when my children were younger, my husband and I handled the meetings, but as they matured, we started bringing them in up to the point of in high school where they took the lead on the meeting, and we were really in a more observer role. So I thank you for having this conversation with us. But even as we all know, sometimes the best laid plans just get disrupted, So what should a parent do if they hit a roadblock or discover some unexpected challenges when they're establishing the accommodations or maybe even after the accommodations have been established and then there's been a violation? Well, Caroline, it's always important to remember that no one goes into education for the money. Most educators chose their career path because they wanted to help children. So keeping that in mind, if you hit a wall when dealing with a school administrator or teacher, try to redirect their attention back to your individual student. Now, before, like I said, my child was old enough to attend his 504 meetings with me, I took a picture of him with me. This helped not only by putting a face to the name, but also as a focal point in the visual aid of sorts to redirect the focus or to recenter the focus. I guess recenter would be a more appropriate word because the focal point of the meeting, the center of attention should always be on that child's needs. This picture along with stories of his reactions helped to reinforce the need for the accommodations we were seeking. And always recentering the attention of the school staff back to your student's needs and the severity of his or her allergens do not work. Please reach out to fight civil rights advocacy staff for assistance. We do offer one-on-one communication free of charge to families and are happy to help you brainstorm and come up with possible solutions or other accommodations that might fit your students' needs. And if all else fails, you always have the option of filing a complaint with the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights, also referred to as the OCR. And I will make sure listeners do have the information on how to get hold of you. So if something does come up, And then I actually just want to add a little tip from me here is I also know when I had problems either establishing the accommodations or even if there was a violation, I would start to get really upset really fast because this is a life-threatening situation. And I learned how to just kind of stop, regulate myself, take a deep breath, and call one of my food allergy moms to talk me off the ledge so I could get logical and then go back in. So I just want to add this tip to listeners. It is always really important to know that our emotions can really get out there and and bring out the worst in us. (laughs) It's happened to me. Oh, and Caroline, you've taught me personally off the ledge a couple of times. I really do think leaning on each other in the food allergy community is a great source of information and support. You know, your other food allergy parent friends in your local community may have already had children going to the same school that your student goes to. So while their accommodations may not necessarily be appropriate for your student, if you have someone older that's gone through plenty of grades, you know, a, um, a mentor food allergy mom, such as you, Caroline. You were for me in my baby days. They're a great source of information. They may be familiar with a 504 coordinator for your district. They may be familiar with principal or someone else on the staff. And they may say, okay, well, this is my support person. So this is the person I would go to at the district. This is the cafeteria director, this manager. This is the way they do things. Here's where the menu is found. And they have all these wonderful, wonderful bits of knowledge we may not have getting started out or at whatever part of your journey you're on. 
another great source is your local support group. And maybe we can get Caroline to drop, if you will, the the link to finding a support group in your area. If you don't have a local support group, that is a wonderful, wonderful wealth of information and support for when you just need to vent to somebody and have them help you regain your composure and go back in there determined to do what's best for your child. And listeners, I will make sure all this information will be in those show notes just for you. Amelia, before we wrap up today, is there anything else you would like listeners to hear? I know we could stay on the subject for hours, but we can't. So what would be your parting words of wisdom to us and information you'd like to make sure we have? Well, you know, it is it is very, very nerve-wracking and stressful if you've never been through this process before, but it doesn't have to be. We have an extensive Civil Rights Advocacy Resource Center available on the FACT website. Many answers to many of your questions are likely contained in that resource center. So it's really a great place to start. And if you've already reviewed the Resource Center and still have questions, or if you are overwhelmed and would like to bounce your ideas or situation off of someone, in fact, like I said, offers that one-on-one civil rights advocacy services to families free of charge. So you can always feel free to email me at amelia.smith at foodallergyawareness.org. But like Caroline and I discussed earlier, your food allergy families in your community are a great source of local information and probably can help you with the specifics of your area more than one of us can. We're always here. The food allergy community is really great and everyone is here to help each other. Amelia, I agree. We were talking earlier offline about how amazing this food allergy community is, and you are absolutely right about that. I've never seen a parent turn away another parent. Everyone is just there. I just appreciate that about the community, but I appreciate this very much about you. And I just want to thank you before we end today for bringing this knowledge in such a nice, calm, and comforting way. Every time I listen to you speak on this subject, I really have this can-do attitude. I really feel like we can do this. We got this. So I want to thank you for your attitude. And most of all, thank you for your time today. Well, thank you, Caroline. There really is nothing inherently adversarial about this process. I appreciate the opportunity to share this information today. And again, listeners, check the show notes. Lots of information in there for you. Before we say goodbye today, I just want to say thank you one more time to Amun for being a kind sponsor of FACTS Roundtable Podcast. Thank you for listening to FACTS Roundtable Podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes coming soon. Please subscribe, leave a review, and listen to our podcast on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Have a great day and always be kind to one another.